You're listening to Weld Found, a podcast about belonging in an age of social isolation and disconnection. This is the first official episode, Out of the Garage and Into the Neighborhood. If you heard the opening story we previously released, we start this episode again with that five-minute piece, giving the big picture of why we're doing this podcast. And speaking of connection, you can reach us on Facebook. We have a page there. I'd love to hear responses to the show, as well as leads on possible stories of giving or philanthropy or connection. Thank you for listening in. Let's begin. This podcast, Weld Found, is made possible by the Weld Community Foundation. Spread the good. When I was nine, I got locked in our garage. Here's how it happened. My parents were heading out of town to see my brother's basketball game, but I was going to stay behind. I had a friend's birthday party to go to. There was going to be cake and Mountain Dew, and who knows, maybe we were going to break the nocturnal cardinal rule of childhood and stay up all night. So I was excited. My parents said, Timbo, Timbo, we're leaving at four, but you can't leave the house until six. That's when your friend's party starts. You can bike over then. My mom set a timer for me and everything. Problem was, our electricity went out and we have an electric garage door. Y'all know where I'm going with this. When it was time to leave, I headed out the garage to get my bike, and as a responsible citizen of the Coons household, I locked the door behind me and shut it. Then I hit the garage door button. Nothing. The power's off. Then I tried to go back in the house. Locked. Button, doorknob, button, doorknob, button, doorknob. And then, of course, absolute panic. Being nine years old, I didn't know how to manually open the garage door. I debated breaking a window above my dad's truck, and then I thought about my father and abandoned the idea. So I was stuck. Let's bring back that timer sound. Once the panic left, well, then came the boredom, and then came on the strongest feeling, loneliness. The party was starting without me. My parents were gone. I was alone. There was this helpless feeling of disconnection. I'm not sure how long I was in there. Honestly, it could have been 10 minutes. I was nine. It felt like an eternity alone, though, with my own thoughts, completely isolated. After what seemed like for forever, boom, the lights of the garage came back on. I hit the garage door button and sped out of there on my 1986 Schwinn bike with tears of joy streaming down my face to my friend's party. There was such a a sweet relief when I got there. To this day, I still choose the rainbow confetti cake we had that night at that party. Can we talk about loneliness for a moment? That feeling I had locked in the garage of being isolated, complete disconnection. Cigna just put out a study, 20,000 people involved. The reports over half said they feel like no one actually knows them well. That means only one in two Americans feel like they have a confidant. Do you have one? A best friend? Someone you can turn to? On average, only half of us will say yes. Additionally, about 40% of people said they lack companionship, their relationships aren't meaningful, and that they feel isolated from others. It feels like a national conversation right now, and I keep hearing about it. We are in an epidemic of social isolation. 
The blame isn't clear, but studies have shown that since the 50s, around the same time as the invention of the television, membership in our community went down. Involvement in Rotary or veterans clubs or the PTA or churches or political parties, you name it, it's probably been on the decline for 60 years. We used to be a nation of joiners, and then we stopped joining. And then recently there's social media, which is supposed to help us feel more connected. But a study out of the University of Pennsylvania just at the end of 2018 shows a link between time spent on platforms like Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and increased depression and loneliness. So I have big questions for us, because these are questions I'm asking myself too. What does it mean to connect, reconnect, to belong, to address the loneliness that seems to be growing between us? Not just connecting more one-on-one, but also to our town, to the very networks where we actually live. In this age of social isolation and disconnectedness, what does it mean to belong to a community, to know your community, its history, its hardships, the hopes and dreams of your neighborhood, to give to your community, There's a great conversation of what is it that I do well and what are the real needs of this county? Here's my confession, friends. I need my life to be more than a profile online right now. I need to dig in the dirt and get messy and watch some things slowly grow. I'm looking for the lights to come on and for us to hop on that banana yellow 86 Schwinn bicycle and get out of the garage because it's lonely in there. And that's what we're attempting to do in this space. Connecting to our home in an age of living above place and belonging when the idea of social involvement is fading. This podcast is for us, for Weld County. This is for Greeley and Windsor, Fort Lupton, Evans, Firestone, all of our cities. With narratives of giving and stories of locale, we'll dig into this lost art of belonging and uncover the soul of our community. And I believe when we discover each other, we'll lose loneliness somewhere along the way. Welcome, my friends, to Weld Found. I'm so excited to share this first episode with you. We'll be hearing from a special guest, City of Greeley Mayor John Gates. He'll be closing our show for us. But first, we'll be having a deeper conversation about community and social involvement. In the intro of this episode, I'm posing all of these big questions about what it means to belong and about community, but I'll be honest, I don't have any answers. So we're talking with someone today who has insights and anecdotes and an overall bigger picture. He's a friend of mine. His name's Dr. Josh Packard, a professor of sociology at the University of Northern Colorado. Here's just a tiny clip of the interview. You're blowing my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And I play that for you because I really did have moments during the conversation where things began to just make more sense. And I think the following could really surprise you with some insights too. So let's just jump right in. Uh, I'm Dr. Josh Packard. I'm a sociologist at the University of Northern Colorado, and I run the social research lab, teach classes like the sociology of religion, sociology of community, stuff like that. So first of all, I don't think that that's, you know, I don't think you're alone in that. I mean, I think a lot of the stress that people feel is and it's like loneliness and it, it gets you know we operationalize it or we talk about it as loneliness because we don't know how else to talk about it but really what's happening is is that we're going through this period of renorming civil life 
What does it mean? Like we are collectively trying to figure out what are the expectations for a 40 year old to participate in civic life. And, you know, for our parents, I think, and grandparents especially, I think that was pretty clear. Like that wasn't, they did not have to figure that out. It was like, there were a clear set of things that you were, you know, like we talked about Rotary Club, whatever, but also local politics and school boards and things like that, that you were expected to show up and be, you know, um, a part of, uh, especially in places where you could know and be known. So in smaller towns, um, like the kinds of places that populate Weld County, that was, that was a very, a fairly straightforward path. This, um, at the same time that we've experienced this loss of those connections, it's also led to this, we've got lots of data actually about this, this massive mistrust around large social institutions. So we, from the 1970s until today, trust has gone down in, in every institution we can measure, government, um, school systems, big business, banks, Congress, local politics, et cetera. The, and, and that's really stressful. So what, what causes people this, what causes sort of like social disruption is when people, it's not so much when things are hard, but it's when people don't know what their roles are. And we've got a whole bunch of people that don't trust the old systems and are trying to figure out what their new roles are and sort of casting about. And so in response to that, people are doing this thing that you're doing, which is turning more local. Um, this is like, you know, this, this is something I can know and impact and it's a place where I can, you know, be a part of. But the advice then, you know, within that system is, I think, to really lean into it. So if the, um, I, I don't think that the, like, I, I don't think farmer's markets are going to disrupt Walmart. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think it's activism at that scale, but I think it's um, like finding a place in your life for the Walmart and the farmer's market. And the way we do that is um, through relationships and, and, and understanding, like, I'm going to spend time and money here at this farmer's market and go out of my way to make a second trip you know, where I could just go to the grocery store, I'm going to come here for honey and pickles and some vegetables or whatever. Um, because I want to know those places, I want to know those people. And it really, so I think that it, it really is just as simple as that. We, we, I think often want to make that process somewhat more difficult and complex because it that taps into this thing that we've been trying to avoid, which is walking outside of our house, shaking hands and saying hello. And um, that's, a, that's a very uncomfortable place to be for a lot of people who, who haven't had to do that for a while. But you know, the thing, so, you know, the, the most sort of uh, famous book in that area is Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, right? That's at the end of the 1990s, so research that is, he was being done 25, 30 years ago. But it's not like, and, and so I, I think while a lot of that decline has maybe stable, uh, stabilized a bit, it's still very low water marks. I mean, there are things like you mentioned, the um, Kiwanis clubs, rotaries, things like have completely shut doors and are no longer existing in the way that they used to. But what was, what, what was so unique and important about those that is not the same and can't be reproduced through things like fantasy football or online video games is that you were with people that you didn't necessarily choose to be with. And that was, um, that is one of the really detrimental things about modern communities. So what this, this like stress that people feel, this isolation and this loneliness is because we've really got this equation backwards. And we think that 
And we're trying to discover new norms around what does a world look like where I get to choose who I'm with all the time. And whether that's online, on Facebook or social media or other places, which I think can be enormously helpful, especially for people with marginalized identities who are not going to be able to find a community where they live necessarily. Um, A lot of my students count those groups as like what got them through high school. But there is something to be, there's a really important thing that happens when, when you have to make relationships and friendships and work together with people that you didn't choose, you don't necessarily have a lot in common with that, you know, aren't in your echo chamber. And we don't do that so much anymore. We're trying to figure out what that looks like. Um, and, and sort of what the ramifications are for that. The, when I say the equation that we've gotten backwards is actually takes us back to one of the oldest lessons in sociology, which is the relationship between belonging and believing. Okay. And so we think about, um, so I know you have background in the church world, and this is one of the places the modern churches get this so wrong, is that they tend to think that believing comes first. And if we can get everybody here to agree to the same like set of principles, then we'll create a community out of that. Right. And so we get these statements of faith, right, where it's like, you know, you have to agree to these like nine principles or whatever. But now we're replicating that same thing in our social lives, where it's basically a a criteria, um, a barrier to entry is like, who did you vote for? You know, how do you feel about these issues? And if you don't line up with me, then we're not going to hang out together. And we think that somehow then we will be in this community if we get a bunch of like minded people together. But what the earliest studies about social groups show us is that belonging actually precedes believing. So what happens is that you get people together spending time in the same place and doing the same kinds of things, and out of that emerges a shared set of beliefs. And that's where, like, that's the basis for real, actual, functioning community. Not this, you know, modern notion where, like, oh, we'll get a bunch of people who agree together, and then they'll form, like, daily life out of it, and it doesn't work that way. When I say that belonging precedes believing, the ways that we... um, craft these sort of, uh, I'm going to say the word ritual, and you're going to think religion, but that's not the only place that I think ritual is important here. It's that it's that we have a shared set of events that we're going through. And I think the closest that we come to it right now for most people is with their kids going through school. So if you think about the other parents of the kids, especially if you're, if you're at a, a, even like a reasonably sized small school, that's, you're not sort of lost in the shuffle and you all start in kindergarten and you don't move away, um, you know those parents. You may never be in their house for dinner. You may have wildly divergent political views, but they are 100% part of your community. And these are like, you know, last night we had a kid stay at our house because his mother um, had a medical emergency for, she's pregnant and had to go to the hospital. And she was like, can you pick up my kid? And like, I don't know anything about her. You know, my wife and her text back and forth because we have kids in the same class and are trying to figure out homework and, you know, make sure that we're getting all the stuff that our kids need, but it's not like she didn't have to pass a litmus test for her kid to stay at my house. We're just in school together. And, um, that is unlike, you know, if if she would have invited me to her house to have dinner and I knew if it was somebody who had invited me to their house to have dinner that I knew at that same level, I'd be like, who are you? You know? (laughs) Um, and those are not, those are, those are useful relationships to get us, you know, through a day, but that's not what creates like social fabric. Um, the, 
one of the other things that Robert Putnam talks about in that book, Bowling Alone, is this thing called social capital, which is really your networks. Who do you know? And the importance of understanding the two different kinds of social capital, which is bridging and bonding. So bonding social capital is like your good friends. So, um, you know, who is it that you could count on? Really, the, the shorthand that I use with my students is like bonding social capital is like who would you lend money to? <laughs> you know, like who, yeah. if you needed to make rent this month and you couldn't, who would you ask for money from? Um, who, you know, who's going to take you to work if your car breaks down, that kind of stuff. Now, bonding social relationships are really great for helping you to get by, right? So if you're stuck, if you're in a pinch, if you need to get by, you need those close friends. Um, but it cuts both ways because if you have, so if you have too many bonding social relationships, it can actually hold you back because, uh, those people will also be asking a lot of you, right? Uh, bridging social capital on the other hand is people, they're sort of more your acquaintances. And, um, so it's not, it's not just, it's, it's not like your good friend, but it's like your good friend's uncle, right? Um, or a, a coworker that you maybe see in the halls that you, you could ask them for an introduction, but probably not for a loan. They might ask you to sit on a board, but they're not like taking over, you know, the meal train for you when, when you have a baby or something like that. Uh, now, in, in the modern world, like, uh, you know, I think that we have that's uh, counterintuitively. Those are really the relationships that we've lost. We've lost a lot of these as networked as we are. Um, We've lost a lot of that bridging social capital because we're not showing up physically in the same places with each other all that often, um, like we used to, and necessarily and spending time with people that we may, maybe don't agree with or know anything about. And what's crucial is that those bonding social relationships help you get by, but the bridging social relationships are the ones that help you get ahead. So you know, like you and I are friends. Um, in fact, this happened with your role in this job. When, when you're like, hey, uh, uh, do you know anything about this position at, at the community foundation? I was like, I was going to mention it to you. I do know about this role of the community. Because you're friends with the people who are like you, who have the same experiences as you. And um, therefore, like if you know something, your friend probably knows it too. Right? They can't really introduce you to all that many new things. Um, the bridging relationships are the ones that open up new opportunities to us. They're the ones that expand our... Um, possibilities. They're the ones that make us consider things that we hadn't previously considered. And we have a real, you don't get that in Facebook where you can block people you disagree with. You don't, you know, it's not that Facebook isn't useful, but I mean, like that doesn't happen there. I'm teaching sociology of community and you know, a lot of what, of what we, what I try to do is translate, what is this entire body of academic research really telling us in a way that people who are non-specialists can understand. And what we've come, um, what I, th- as I was thinking about sociology of community and how to introduce it to my students on the first day, it came to mind that like maybe a community is just a bunch of people who can count on each other to behave in particular ways. And it doesn't mean, you know, which I think the reason why I like that and, and it captures enough for me is that We've, we've sort of distorted this notion of community into something of like, oh, they're the people I like. They're the people I spend time with. But, and, and then I thought of like, wait a minute, but you know, the, the skeptic in me is like, hold on, what, what case doesn't fit here? It's one of the mental tools that we always use. So I'm like, who's a part of my community that I don't like? Which I think is a really useful question, right? And so I was thinking about my old neighbor um, whom I didn't like 
and but was definitely a, a like a, a part of my community. I was like, I can count on him to do particular things that drive me crazy, and and he was certainly a part of my community, and uh, and and so it. But it's that it's that predictability that matters. So it's that it's that we know each other well enough to know how somebody is likely to behave. Um, and that they know that we are counting on them to behave in particular ways. And, and those kinds of things are, I think, really at the root and heart of what community means. Not, again, not your best friends, but what does it mean to have a community? And too much, I think, like uh, in, in the modern world, we have people who should be a part of our community. They live near us. They work near us. But we don't know them at all. And I have no idea what's going on with their lives or how they would act or behave in a particular way. I mean, how often does something like, ask yourself this question, do you know what your neighbors do? We moved in July of last year and I, I know two or three of them, but not that many. And at my old house, I felt like it was actually sort of odd because I did know several of them, but boy, the house before that, I had no idea. Either side of me across the street, no idea. Yeah, our, our Greeley house on 11th Avenue, we didn't know any anybody but Tammy. <laughs> yeah, right, down the street from me. Yeah, down the street. And then, uh, but now we know, like, I think a part of it is... Cul-de-sac, too, helps. Yeah, cul-de-sac. Yeah. And the kids are coming out constantly. And so we're, yeah. we're getting to meet, I'd, I'd say we know um, close to 50%. Does it feel more like a community where you live now? I than, love it. Right. Yeah, I do. Like, I like I love it. I was like, I was, I was like that dude was a retired, or he's a retired fireman for, you know, he was a fireman for 20 years. I can go and talk to him if I have big questions about fire safety or something going on in my or, house. Or even just interested in what that life was like. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that those, like, that stuff, that that seems very simple. And community doesn't isn't necessarily that complex. It, it, it's just that we've gotten away from those very simple things of who are the people around me? Like, who are literally the people around me? and being curious, genuinely curious about other people's lives and uh, and not taking it so personally when they don't necessarily agree with your view of the world. <laughs> like, it's still going to be okay. Huge thanks to Josh Packard. And thanks to you for listening in on this first episode. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or where you listen. It also helps when you share about us on social media or just tell your friends about it. We hope to release Weld Found twice a month this fall. We've got six episodes ready to roll. The next one is titled Courageous Women and the County that Loves Them. It'll feature Neela Pekarik, a former member of the Lumineers, who went to UNC, along with other women from this county who are making bold, inspiring moves. We end today with John Gates, mayor of Greeley, Colorado. I heard him do this state-of-the-city talk, and he closed with these numerical facts about Greeley. And it was so interesting because it was just these numbers, like how many miles of street and how many potholes we've had filled. But after thinking so much about this need to belong to my community, I actually found the statistics moving. So here's Mayor Gates. When I was doing these presentations, I thought, you know, rather than just be a talking head, mm-hmm. let me come up with some tidbits, what I call them. And so I reached out to city staff, and they gave me these things that are kind of interesting, but they're also factual. I've had people say, no, you made that up. No, this stuff is factual. Yeah. So I found I've done about four presentations now where I close with this, and people were kind of intrigued. 
In Greeley, we have 118 traffic signals, 376 miles of streets. In 2018, we filled 21,128 potholes, which seems large, but prior to the Keep Greeley Moving initiative, in 2014, we filled 69,754. We have 170 miles of stormwater pipes, 700 miles of curbs and sidewalks. We plowed 26,016 lane miles in 2018. Our city crews removed 487 incidents of graffiti. In Greeley, we have 112 miles of bike lanes, 26,000 traffic signals. We have 6,106 street lights, all owned by XL, but the city pays the bill, so we're gonna count them. And our Greeley-Evans bus system, called the Transit or GET, G-E-T, had 842,000 riders in 2018. I hope you enjoyed those small bits of trivia. Special thanks to Dave Farrell, a professor at Ames Community College who helped with sound engineering for this episode. And thanks to Mayor of Greeley, John Gates, and Professor of Sociology at UNC, Josh Packard, for being guests on the show. Finally, thanks to Weld Community Foundation and sponsoring the creation of this work. For information on becoming a fund holder or applying for a grant if you're a nonprofit or looking into scholarships if you're a student, head to weldcommunityfoundation.org. Our next episode, Courageous Women and the County That Loves Them, releases 1st of September. <laughs>